today on Ag News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here. Glad to be back with you on this. It's a snowy Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and I am talking to Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you? Good, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be back. Glad to be on the podcast once again, updating everybody with the greatest source, quite frankly, of <laughs> agricultural news. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, so let's see, Delaney. Actually, I've got a piece here that you might find interesting because you are a workout person. You enjoy the exercise. <laughs> yes, I do. I worked out this morning. Well, that's that's where we're all very proud of you. Clap, 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 clap. Now, <laughs> when uh, when you work out, are you a person who wears like fleeces? Are you in the performance fleece no. type of category? No, you get too hot. Well, don't you? Isn't the whole point of working out to sweat? Yeah, but. I'm already going to sweat. I don't need to add to it. That would be like when wrestlers used to wear like those, I call them hazmat suits, but that's not exactly what they are. Those sweat suits to yeah. like lose more weight. I don't understand the point of that. Well, for them, they want to, they got to cut weight. Yeah, so I they know. can be in that weight class now. I don't know. I never, I wasn't a wrestler, so I don't really understand it. Um, that to me just seemed unbelievably unhealthy. <laughs> and, well, exactly. That's why I don't want to sweat more than I have to. Now you're speaking my language, Delaney. I never want to sweat more than I have to, which is why I don't work out in the first place. Okay. What's your news story? What's your point here? Here's my point. (laughs) Reuters is reporting that because of the drought in Australia, we are seeing prices for performance fleeces skyrocket. And I was just wondering if this is something you had seen in the fancy workout people clothing stores. I don't even Um, know what that is. I can't. A performance fleece? Performance fleece. Huh. I've never even heard you of that. You know, it's what, it's what fancy people wear with their Lululemon leggings and so <laughs> forth. <laughs> That's true. Lululemon, I think, yeah. is uh, actually how you pronounce it, but good try. Whatever. Yeah, obviously. I don't think they make Lululemon in my, my side. <laughs> Probably not quite. But uh, what they found is... No. So basically, merino wool uh, has exploded in price. The prices have increased on average 7 to 8% year over year. And we're, that's on the wholesale side. On the retail side, prices for wool goods are up 15% year over year. So if you are looking to buy somebody workout clothes, maybe on this Black Friday that is approaching, you probably better do it sooner rather than later because that Australian drought you know, is still impacting their wool output hmm. from their uh, from their sheeps. Interesting. I don't think sheeps is a word, but uh... sure it is. It's like beeves <laughs> or gooses. No, that's geese, Delaney. Come yeah. On. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Come. Come. Anyway, so that's my story. Get out there. Get your performance fleeces, which is a word, uh-huh. as you need them because prices are going to continue to climb. All right. Thanks for that piece of news, Mike. Good update. Darn right. Bringing bringing news the consumer needs to hear, Delaney. That's what we're all about. Friends, that's why you need to share this podcast with all of your friends on social media. (laughs) You can always tag us at Ag News Daily on Twitter or on Facebook, and that way your friends can be up to speed as well on what is happening in the price of Marina Wall. All right. Well, thanks for that shameless plug there, Mike. Uh, Let's talk about some trade news. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. 
Well, on Tuesday, the Trump administration basically said that China has failed to alter its, quote, unfair practices uh, with what's going on right now between the U.S. and China trade conflict, which is adding tensions ahead of this meeting that we have later this month going on with the G20 summit. The U.S. Trade Representative's Office did a Section 301 investigation into China's intellectual property and technology transfer policies. And they basically have said, you know, we haven't done anything to fix these practices since we've put on these tariffs and started this quote-unquote trade war. And um, Robert Lighthizer made a statement which uh, ticked off some Chinese people, I'm sure. He said, quote, this update shows that China has not fundamentally altered its unfair, unreasonable, and market-distorting practices that were the subject of the March 2018 report on our Section 301 investigation. And we have definitely seen the soybean markets reacting to all sorts of trade and tariff news this week with soybeans down like 18 cents on Monday. So. Well, we've got other trade news going on as well over in Geneva, Switzerland, the U.S. and China today are beginning sort of the first phase of their World Trade Organization adjudication of the various tariffs and counter tariffs and so forth. And basically, they've just kind of been, uh, I guess, shouting at one another. The U.S. ambassador to the WTO, Dennis Shea, said China was using the World Trade Organization to promote, quote, non-market policies. And those are distorting the world markets and lead to massive excess capacity, particularly in steel and aluminum, which has been a hot topic for the Trump administration. So that came from the U.S. And then a Chinese official spoke right afterwards and said that, quote, Beijing does not want to get into a blame game, unquote. But he said the U.S. has failed to back up its unfounded claims about China's economy, which it is using to disguise its own violations of the World Trade Organization rule book. Now, this is a lot of tit for tat, and it's a lot of grandstanding on the global Mm -hmm. stage. But this matters because if these tariffs, either ours or China's, are upheld by the World Trade Organization, that effectively gives them, I guess, sanction in the international community. And right now, most of these tariffs, particularly the 301 tariffs that we have put on in national security sense, would then be allowed to be continued and they would be sort of codified into law, like our tariffs on Argentinian biodiesel and Indonesian biodiesel, where we've got massive tariffs because they were approved by the WTO. So this is something we'll have to keep an eye on. We don't yet have an end time as to when this WTO investigation or adjudication will wrap up. Could take up to a year, Mm. but the uh, opening shots were fired this morning in Geneva. All right. Really, you think they were shouting at each other? Well, it doesn't say shouting, but it, it, it sounds like, you know, how in Congress, when somebody will talk and then somebody else will say, well, I respect the honorable senator from blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then they proceed and to, like, you know, rail them after that. Exactly. You know, when somebody says, well, you know, the honorable senator from so and so, what they're really doing is they're saying, you know, that loudmouth dummy, you know, <laughs> it, it's the bureaucratic way that's like to a, be mean. That's like when people say, no offense, but, and then they proceed to insult you. Exactly. Or if Ashley, if Ashley Arrington were to say, well, bless your heart, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really an insult. It's not a good thing. Right. 
no. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of that going on in Geneva. Mm. Okay, well, I understand that, I guess. Okay, so yesterday we talked a little bit about um, the RFS potentially changing or increasing blending fuels for the last three years of that. Um, Now we've got a couple other RFS-related pieces of news today. The EPA is going to release the final setting for biofuel blending requirements for 2019, and those usually get released sometime around November 30th, but last year they were released the day before Thanksgiving, so we're going to watch and see if that drops early again this year. Um, We're expecting numbers to be about the same as what they were proposed in June with 19.88 billion gallons, including 15 billion gallons of conventional ethanol. However, the other thing I wanted to talk about related to ethanol today was a company that was granted a hardship waiver in 2017 that I personally believe probably shouldn't have been granted a hardship waiver, and that was Chevron. Oh, really? Yeah. They reported a net income in 2017, which was the year they received this waiver, a net income of $9.2 billion, and they became the largest known company to be awarded a hardship waiver from the renewable fuel standard. How does that make any sense? Well, you know, they only made, what was it, $900 million? No, $9.2 billion. Oh, golly. Well, see, it wasn't even the double-digit billion dollars. Of course they needed that hardship waiver. Yeah. Poor Chevron. Poor little Chevron. Oh, golly gee, it's a good thing they're getting a handout from Uncle Sam. It's just, I don't, I don't even understand. Like, that makes zero sense. No, it makes zero sense unless you look at it from the perspective of this is an EPA that has worked time in and time out to assist the oil companies at the expense of ethanol producers. If you look at it through that lens, which is perhaps a little conspiracy theorist-y, then this all kind of starts to make a little more sense. Yeah, These aren't hardship waivers as much as they are explicit bailouts for gigantic oil companies that are earning unbelievable profits. Not that I'm bitter. No, you don't sound like it. No. <laughs> well, speaking of bitterness, I, I read a really interesting article here on Reuters, and actually in it was featured our good friend, friend of the pod, Matthew Bennett, ha- had a couple quotes in here. But um, they talked about how farmers are letting crops rot in the field or they're plowing under soybeans. And now this really oh. surprised me because, Delaney, you and I do a fair amount of traveling. Mm-hmm. And in my travels this fall, I have not seen anybody going out there to plow under soybeans. Have you? No, I haven't. Where was this? In Reuters? This was in Reuters. And so they, they cite a Louisiana farmer, Richard Fontenot, and his neighbors. Okay. So apparently they're choosing down in Louisiana to plow under soybeans. Uh, this farmer in particular plowed under a 1,000 of his 1,700 soybean acres. But here's the kicker. His beans were already damaged by bad weather. They were made worse by a wet harvest. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing he was getting paid on these through crop insurance, and now he's just tilling them up. I I don't know. It didn't make much sense. But listeners, if you're out there, if you or your neighbors are going to go ahead and let crops rot in the field or till under crops rather than harvest, let us know. I'd love to hear some stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't love to hear it. In fact, my heart goes out to you if you're in that position. But I, I would like to hear if anybody is actually having to do this outside of a crop insurance program payment. 
The other thing that was interesting in this article, they talk about how one of the grain bag retailers, which is a company called Neralta, Neralta bags are their sales are up thirty percent from a year yeah, ago. I and they are that. currently sold out of grain bags. I'm not surprised actually. Man, I guess I'm not either, but that just tells you just how many farmers are looking at the deferred months, as Darren Newsom was talking about here a couple of weeks ago, seeing those higher prices on the board, and they're waiting. They're not hauling beans into town right away. But remember, as Darren said, if that's your marketing plan, sell at those higher prices now while they're on the board. Yeah. Don't let that price slowly erode, so now you're just storing and selling at the exact same price you would have sold at today mm -hmm. anyway. That's true. People get greedy, though, yeah. so, I tell you. Well, you know, they, they do get greedy. And that's, you know, markets operate on a continuum of fear versus greed. So be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful, <laughs> as Warren Buffett once said. That's good. I like that. Yeah, I do, too. I think it's just great investing advice. And if you can act on it, well, you're miles ahead of everybody else. But chances are most of us get greedy when everybody else is greedy and scared when everybody else is scared. And that's why uh, we're all not rich like Warren Buffett. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Well, I've got some Thanksgiving fun facts. Do you have any other news or can I share some of those with us? I just have one other piece of news, and it's kind of good news for our friends in Northern California, our ranchers and uh, farming friends in NorCal who have been hit by these wildfires. Heavy rains are expected to come through today, which should help reduce a lot of the fire risk and put out some of the smoldering flames. However, it's also going to make tough life tough for the rescue teams who are still searching for victims there in the deadliest wildfire in California's history. So folks, our friends out there in California aren't through the worst of it yet. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers this Thanksgiving, especially those who don't have a Thanksgiving table to gather around because it was burnt up in these devastating wildfires. Yeah, our hearts and prayers definitely go out to those people during uh, this time of year for sure. Absolutely. Well, what are your what are your fun facts? Let's not okay. end on a downer note. What no, are your fun not. facts? Okay, so let's play a little Thanksgiving trivia. I'm going to start out here with, well, I think it's an easy one, but maybe not. Mike, how many calories do you think the average American takes in during their Thanksgiving celebrations? Just the dinner or throughout the entire day consuming beers afterwards while watching <laughs> football? Does that count? Uh, I... I I don't know. The The fact doesn't specify whether it's all day or just at the Thanksgiving meal itself. Just guess. I'm going to say 1,800. More. I'm going to say 2,300. The average American takes in 3,000 to 4,500 calories at their Thanksgiving celebration. Okay, that's got to be all day long. I don't know. I mean, you cannot eat... 4,500 calories. Turkey is a fairly low-cal dish. Stuffing isn't tremendously full of calories. I imagine cranberry sauce probably has quite mm. a few calories in pumpkin it. Pumpkin pie. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a very, very dense food right there, that pumpkin yeah, pie. Yeah, I think, I think it is probably for the full day, though. That would be my guess. I don't I know, though. Because, so. you know, you figure there's, what, 120 calories in a beer? I mean, you drink yeah. 10 of those while you're watching football, boom, you're a quarter of your way to that 4,500. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's easy to do. Okay, I've got some other facts for you. Um, okay, lay it on us. Okay, so the, where was it at? Oh, okay, the uh, average turkey consumption for year 
at Thanksgiving time is about 46 million turkeys. Okay. Uh, I thought this one was kind of interesting. So in 1953, a Swanson employee accidentally ordered a colossal shipment of Thanksgiving turkeys, 260 tons to be exact. And with that, one of the salesmen had this idea to get rid of all this extra turkey and created the first TV dinner. They used all of the extra turkey along with cornbread, dressing, craving peas, and sweet potatoes to make 98-cent aluminum tray TV dinners. Wow. Wow. So that's where TV dinners came yeah, from was a, kind of fun. a bit of a, a fat finger turkey order for Thanksgiving. <laughs> huh. mm-hmm. Okay. Another one here for you. Only male turkeys actually gobble. Did you know that one? I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Male turkeys are the gobblers. And the last one for so you. So female, female turkeys are quiet. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. So you're telling me <laughs> that of all the species, the turkey gets the quiet female. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> you're so Turkey, funny. you don't know how lucky you got it. I know <laughs> I'm hilarious. Okay, last one for you. An estimated 50 million pumpkin pies are eaten on Thanksgiving Day. Ah, uh, that, that seems reasonable. Well, for today's conversation, we're going to be having an upbeat one here with Megan Harper, who was a former AgriCorps member in Liberia and now a current graduate student at Texas A&M. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Howdy. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Howdy. I like that from Texas A&M. All right. Um, Megan, tell us a little bit about your experience with AgriCorps. Why did you decide to go? Why did you decide to pick Liberia? I've got lots of questions for you. Sure. Um, I actually didn't pick Liberia. I was placed in Liberia, but it was a wonderful place to be placed. Um, I grew up in 4-H and FFA, like lots of people. My mom was a 4-H agent. She just retired in October. My dad was an FFA advisor, and so that was naturally something that he wanted us to be involved in. So uh, my sister and I both grew up in 4-H and FFA, and it just really felt like the right opportunity to give back to generation. Um, the $9 billion was really heavy on my heart, especially coming out of undergrad so um yeah it just felt like the right thing to do and the right thing to be involved with so now megan before we get too far into it tell us what is agricor so agricor is a non-governmental organization or as people in developing countries call them an ngo um so it's based out of throckmorton texas it's funded by businesses and individuals who would like to um, give to the cause of AgriCorps. Our mission is um, experiential learning in developing countries. So we're currently in Liberia and Ghana. And um, our fellows work in three areas. We work as an FFA advisor, so working on leadership skills and developing um, all kinds of qualities in young people that we do the same in the U.S. and 4-H and FFA. Very similar program to that. Um, it is actually 4-H in Ghana and then Liberia. We have one school, actually the school that I was placed at, that has FFA. And so I was able to be an actual FFA advisor to a couple of chapters there in that county. We also work as agriculture teachers in the county and as extension agents. So working with farmers on new technology, um, good management practices, how to take care of soil, just very basic things that really we did in the 1980s and a little bit before here in the U.S., but they're just now adopting over there. 
Wow, that is really neat. So you kind of got to be a jack of all trades. It sounds like you worked as an FFA advisor. You worked kind of with extension. Is Am I understanding that correctly, Megan? Yes, that's correct. And, and a lot of it depends on what the fellow's strengths are, what they wanted to spend most of their time with, and what the community needed. I spent most of my time teaching. I was an agriculture teacher at a high school. I taught um, plant science to freshmen. I had a class of 67 and small ruminant science to sophomores, and that was a class of about a 45. And then I taught leadership and entrepreneurship to over 180 students that were between the ages of 30 and 45 in the post-secondary school program. So a lot of my time was spent teaching and then on the advisor side of things. Well, now, for those of us who have never traveled to Africa or have never traveled to Liberia, what's the education system like? Is there a school system similar to what we'd expect here in uh, rural America? No, not um, not at all. I think that was one of the big shockers for me going to Liberia was they had their first election, free election since um, before their civil war, which happened um, beginning of the 90s and it lasted all the way up to 2003. And so um, there was about a month that we didn't have school, that we were intended to have school because of political things or just decided to wait. We would, Every time there was an election or planned to be an election, we were out of school for a week. And I think we missed about four weeks of school for the election, counting the results, then the recount of the election once we had a runoff of candidates. So it was a lot of political things going into school systems there. And then if it's raining really hard, you don't have class, or sometimes you don't have class for a football game. Uh, I don't think I had class on any Friday in my high school students because they had football game or soccer game as we would call it here in the U.S. Oh. Very different for sure. Yeah. So Megan was your undergraduate in agricultural education or were you kind of learning how to teach while you were in Liberia? Sure. My undergrad was in agriculture economics and that's what I'm studying in graduate school now. Um, I had obviously a lot of experience in education with my mom being a 4 H agent. I taught lots of after school programs and things, but definitely my first experience in having my first real classroom and writing tests and teaching lectures and all those things was very new and, and learned a lot through that. So. Wow. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about the agriculture in Liberia, because if I'm, my geography might be a little off, <laughs> but isn't it pretty close to the equator? Very close to the equator, yes, sir. Yeah. So and what? Uh, what would? Okay. So what? What are their main types of agriculture? I um, don't imagine you were working with a lot of show steers down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no show steers. Uh, I never saw. There's some low-lying cattle, Brahma-type influence there, but not a lot of cattle either. Um, lots of goats, but when you think goats, think like pygmies or uh, crossbred. Things. I'm a goat producer in the U.S. and we have show stock, so don't get too excited thinking, you know, they're going to be really good goats because they're just not. They're pygmies, um, basically. But um, a lot of their agriculture, because people um, are very strict on their diet as, as to what they like to eat, there's only six main soups that people consume for all three meals. So for breakfast, you'll eat a soup. For lunch, you'll eat a soup. And for supper, you'll eat a soup. And there's really only six soups that you eat, and then it'll be with a meat. So the two meats that are consumed would be chicken and fish. And then there is bush meat, which can be anything that's been killed out in the 
wild and people sell on the stick on the side of the road, but usually people eat chicken or fish. And there's six different types of soups, and those are really the only food crops that people care to produce there. Um, they don't really want to introduce new crops. They don't want to really learn about cooking new things or finding new things. And so um, part of what I did was just introduce them to other diverse diets because you can imagine just eating rice in a soup every day for your whole life. You don't really get the nutritional value that you need. Um, so the six, six main soups would be cassava leaf, which has to be cooked for a very long time to get the cyanide out of it to make it even able to be consumed. They eat the tops of potato greens. So if you think of sweet potatoes that are growing, they don't actually eat the sweet potatoes. They eat the greens that grow from the top of it, and that's the main soup. Beans is the main soup. Um, pumpkin is a main soup. So not really things that we think of with high nutritional value, but they're cooked for a long time. So a lot of the nutrition cooked off and then also is eaten with soup. So really not a great diet. Now, why, why don't they eat the potato part of the sweet potato? It's just not accepted to be eaten there. Uh, huh. I never saw a lot of well, eating smart. a soup potato all the time I was there. <laughs> yeah, sweet you potatoes don't are gross. I think the librarians are in the snowpack. Jeez. Yeah, they're missing out. So, Megan, I want to ask, you said you, you said a couple of things that sparked my interest. You said, one, the fact of 9 billion people by 2050 or 2030 was weighing heavy on your heart. But mm -hmm. you also said that they're not super adoptive of new practices or new crops mm -hmm. or new foods. Yeah. In your time there, what do you think, what's your outlook then for the future of growing food? Because, you know... Africa is supposed to be this big undeveloped country or undeveloped uh, continent and people mm -hmm. keep pouring in money and development. Do you think that it's going to yeah. be the future of how we feed uh, so many people? I mean, if you think about the place where arable land is left, 70% of it is in Africa and on the continent of Africa, only about 3% of farmers have adopted no-till agriculture. So if you if you speak to students about and farmers about no-till agriculture, they're kind of like, why would you not till up the whole land? Why would you only till up in one spot or only till and dig where you need to plant things? And that's a pretty foreign concept. Um, rain's very heavy in Liberia, especially during the rainy season. So, I mean, every farmer that I dealt with would, well, not the no-till farmers, but every farmer that I dealt with on a regular basis would dig up the land, plant, the big rains would come, wash all the nutrients away. They might get another planting in there, but probably not, and they would have to move to somewhere else and then move somewhere else, move somewhere else. So they had to brush all of the weeds and vegetation away, dig up the soil, plant for one season, maybe another half season, and do, do it again and again. So and it's very high labor. I mean, there there's no tractors or people that are um, able to use that kind of technology. You're doing all of it by hand. Um, a cutlass, which is kind of like a machete, is how you brush and get rid of all the vegetation. And then you use something that's kind of like a hoe to dig and, and plant things. So it's a um, very, very, very labor intensive to do work there. Uh, I was able to work with an organization called LICC and they're adopting um, and really helping with teaching farmers and people in the country about 
no-till agriculture and the basis of leaving a cover crop or leaving some vegetation, even if it's just the leaves that you just brushed off, putting them back on it to help protect the topsoil. And we've seen that to be highly adoptive, even just um, giving them a little bit of experience. If you have like a test plot that they can see how much more production they get by taking good care of the soil season after season, that's really been helpful. What we've learned it through AgriCorps is that you can give a lot of money and that'll be sustainable for as long as the money's there, but education is really a lot more valuable. And that's one thing that I've seen with my students, especially in the time that I've been back, is that um, hands-on learning and empowering them to learn and to think and to process for themselves really gives them a lot more life skills. You think about your experience in FFA and how much that impacted not only your ability in agriculture, but your ability in the rest of your life. And we found that to be true, that empowering teachers to teach more hands-on skills and to help them to empower students rather than just memorize this fact or memorize this test, but um, really has empowered a lot of, of young people to, to adopt those technologies. Now, as an ag econ expert, when you think about Africa, Liberia specifically, what do you think they need to make the gains in first in order to, to kind of rise above or, or rise out of the subsistence farming uh, type of mindset? Do they need to develop markets for other types of crops? Do they need to, to develop tastes for other things first and foremost before these mm -hmm. other things will catch on? Or, or what do you think about it from that perspective? Um, it's really heartbreaking when you look at the market structure there in Liberia. You go to the market that was in my community, and there is, I don't know, 60 women that are all selling the same thing. So they're all selling eggplant or they're all selling pepe or they're all selling the five crops that they grow. Um, it's very inefficient in terms of their time and energy for them all to be selling the same thing. They're all charging the same price. So it's not like it's a very um, efficient thing. Plus the goods are perishable. So Things that are grown in the inlands with bad roads aren't able to get to a marketplace somewhere else or they to be distributed that way. Basically, what's grown in your community is what's available there. Um, so, I mean, I think the biggest thing and what most people would say is that the market structure in terms of infrastructure of we need better roadways and we need better organization of how to navigate getting produce from the farmer to other people. Um, and I think that's really the holdup in the whole government. I mean, about 85% of people there or more are subsistence farmers, so they're only producing enough food for their family and their home. And so even the thought of producing more to some people is a foreign concept. But once they have adopted that, then there has to be a way to, to get rid of the excess that you have to sell. And, and that's really the holdup. Hmm. Wow, Megan. Well, this has been fascinating. I have just kind of one final question for you. For sure. listeners or people that think, you know, doing something like this, like AgriCorps or doing a mission trip to Africa or another underdeveloped country is something that they're maybe interested in, but hesitant or nervous. What advice do you have for those people? Oh, wow. I uh, tell my students, um, I had to give a shout out to my post-secondary school students. I'm sure they won't hear this podcast, but um, just a thought. They're you can share it with them. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could. Um, they're graduating this Saturday, uh, my leadership and post and um, entrepreneurship students. And I just think it is 
it's such a powerful thing to see how the world works in another country. Um, we really don't think how obvious corruption can be in another country. I think that's one of the big things I learned about living in Liberia, how um, it's not really about that they need food, that they need quality food, and they need food that has nutritional value. And so um, I wouldn't think about going to another country to save the world or going to another country to lend all of your knowledge and have them adopt things. I think just go to learn. Go to learn about what they like. Go to learn about what their average day is like. Go and see how their systems work and their governments work and keep a really open mind about what they have because everyone's got something to contribute to the world and America is not the best way always. Awesome. Well, Megan, we certainly have appreciated your insight into uh, Liberia and Africa's agricultural system. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks so much for having me.